Did you start it, Doc? Um, let's do the Shakespeare poem. Remember that in Shakespeare's poem, one of, in sonnets, one of the reasons I'm staying with this is to keep in front of us something from the West that's a dominant element of our tradition, even if we don't see it. That is, in the West, there is a really strong sense of a logos, a rationality, everywhere in nature. It could be a flower, it could be a windhover, Hopkins windhover, you know it. Everything reveals Christ. He's the means of creation, he's present. Do we see him in a flower, a windhover, a bird? Um, Hopkins, the form of Hopkins poetry showed it to us, remember Octave and a, and a Sestet. And we're going to actually touch on it today with, I'm going to go back to Chaucer of all people for a second. I hope I can remember to bring it out. With Shakespeare, Shakespeare's doing the same thing, but in a different way, a different method. He's giving three quatrains, A, B, A, B, C, D, C, D, E, F, E, F, three quatrains, they all rhyme, and concluding with a couplet that rhymes. So what he's doing is showing three different exempla three different illustrations of a universal truth, which means that even if things are particular and seem to be um, discrete, unrelated, they're related. They're all related because they share, they participate in being. So there's a universal truth to things that the mind can grasp. So the things are not just individual things isolated, which is, that's called nominalism, the, the belief that there are only individual things, there are no universals. That means if there's no universals, there's no trinity. Um, the modern belief is there's just particulars. Um, Shakespeare's showing that that's not true. There are these particular things, but they're all tied together by this underlying universal thing. And it shows the presence of being. We can grasp these universal truths. So. And the reason for doing this is because I think in the East, in Russia, that's not true. The East does not have that tradition, the Logos. It does not have a realist philosophy tradition. I'm going to repeat that because it's crucial. The East does not have a realist philosophy tradition. It doesn't give reason its place. If we looked at Dante, or we could go back to Homer and Virgil. In Homer and Virgil, we, we have our first experiences of universal truths about honor or marriage or Rome, you know, the founding of Rome in Virgil's Aeneid. But the ancient Greeks were the first ones to give us this sense of universals. Christ makes that explicit when he comes into the world. And then we get Boethius, God is all good. There, remember the, those lines we've read, there is no bad fortune. That's one of his great conclusions. Remember the still point of the center? That at that center, God is at work always bringing good out of evil. So no matter what stupid evil things we do, God's always bringing some good out of it. So for us to be crying or allowing us to be overwhelmed with a grief is to somehow lose touch with that center. It's always there. So that even if it's natural for us to grieve, and we should, we should never forget God never abandons us. He's always here. 
It's going to be one of the truths in Brothers Karamazov. So in Shakespeare's sonnets, we get these three quatrains and a couplet. Okay, and we've seen it again and again and again. How can you repeat it? <laughs> because it's repeatable. It's present everywhere. So every sonnet he writes takes that form. Okay? So even though we have a different subject, he's still showing us a profound truth underlying them all, no matter how varied they are, okay? So we read a couple weeks ago the sonnet about lust um, or, or marriage, sonnet 116, let me not to the marriage of true minds admitted pen. Love is a fixed thing. It, we don't lose it um, when something goes wrong. We always come back to it. 129 is the sonnet about lust, and remember he's not giving us an image. What he's doing is imitating the action of lust, the expensive spirit and a waste of shame. And then he shows all these contraries bumping up against each other. It's like we're wrecked, because in the moment of lust, when we give in to it, we're divided. Our passions take on, we say, no, don't do that, but we do it. Um, and he ends, um, a bliss in proof and proved a very woe. We want it because it promises this bliss. If I can only get this, I'll be happy. We get it, <laughs> and we're miserable, guilty and ashamed. A bliss in proof and proved a very woe. Before a joy proposed, behind a dream. All this the world well knows, yet none knows well to shun the heaven that leads men to this hell. Joyce, I'm sorry. Um, Doctor, are there any extra copies in that bin? No, they're not. You checked? It's very easy to look it up on your phone. Which is the song about? 129. I want to get you, but... It's not the same. Joyce, I'll send you a link so that you can just get copies. They're hard copies that we make. They're usually made available because um, Ellie prints them, but... And then remember we did 130, which is one of my favorites because he's playing off against Petrarch who, who elevates the beloved you know, above the world. She's everything. And Shakespeare compares his mistress to her and she fails in everything. She's got bad breath. She's got hair like wires. She's got breasts like dun. You know, my mistress' eyes are nothing like the sun. Coral is far more red. If snow be white, then her breasts are dun. Anyway, he, he's mocking the Petrarch, the Italian sonnet tradition in, through Petrarch because of the way he exaggerates the, he, the way he idealizes a woman, idolatrizes her, turns her into something more than she is. Remember Dante's critique of that in the siren in um, Purgatorio? But when Dante saw that siren and she started singing, he could not free himself. That's an image of idolatry. It's what all of us do, or mo I think most of us, when we're younger, we tend to idolatry somebody, the, the wife you love, the husband you love, and then things go bad. <laughs> um, because we've tried to make them into something they're not. So he, he describes his wife as she is, then in the breath that from my mistress reeks, I love to hear her speak, yet well I know the music hath far more pleasing sound. I grant I never saw a goddess go. My mistress, when she walks, treads on the ground. She's a human being. She has all the faults that other women have. And yet by heaven, I think my love as rare as any she belied with false compare. He loves her with her ordinariness as a human being. 
Sonnet 146, this is where we are tonight, okay? So this is 146. It's, 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 a, it's like the, what do you call those sonnets that are laments in the Psalms? That long list of sonnets that grieve about our personal sins. We read them during Lent. Um, yeah, yeah. This belongs to that tradition, okay? Sonnet 146. Poor soul, the center of my sinful earth, my sinful earth, these rebel powers array. Why dost thou pine within and suffer dearth, painting thy outward walls so costly gay? They're all lies. They're all lies. Why so large a cost, having so short a lease? Dost thou upon thy fading mansions spend? Why do you give all these things are going to waste all this attention? Shall worms, inheritors of this excess, eat up thy charge? Is this thy body's end? And so live thou upon thy servant's loss, and let that pine to aggravate thy store by terms divine and selling hours of dross. Within be fed, without be rich no more. So shalt thou feed on death that feeds on men, and death once dead, there's no more dying then. I'll read it once more, okay? You, you all got the gist of it, yeah? We give all this attention to things that are dying when they're gonna die, and the cost of that on our lives is not small, because in a sense, it feeds on us. <laughs> God, we waste our, we give our lives to this stuff it's like it eats us, and only because we give it that place in our lives, okay? So one more time, 146. Poor soul, the center of my sinful earth, my sinful earth, these rebel powers array. Why dost thou pine within and suffer dearth, painting thy outward walls so costly gay? Why so large a cost, having so short a lease? Dost thou upon thy fading mansion spend? Why do you give all this? It's going to go. Shall worms, inheritors of this excess, eat up thy charge? Is this thy body's end? Then so live thou upon thy servant's loss, and let that pine to aggravate thy store, by terms divine in selling hours of dross, costly. That's the cost of things, and we pay it when it has that effect on us. And let that pinder aggravate thy store by terms divine and selling hours of dross. Within be fed, without be rich no more. So shalt thou feed on death that feeds on men. And death once dead, there's no more dying then. Okay, Dostoevsky. Um... Just a couple opening reflections um, before we look at, um, um, there are two sections, two books we have to look at tonight, books 10 and 11. You remember the book, books 10 about the kids and books, uh, book 11 is really briefly about Lisi, the madness that she's slipping into and um, Yvonne. And I'd like to try to manage things tonight so that we focus on Yvonne because it seems to me it's the spiritual center that lines up with Zosimov. If Zosimov is a man given to God, Yvonne is a modern who's turned away from God, um, acting as if there were going to be no consequences. 
and we're watching him go mad. Um, but a couple opening thoughts first. If you look at the very last page, at the end, you'll see, be reminded, Dostoevsky published Brothers Karamazov. It was the last work he did. Remember, he did the work called The Devils? So he just finished a major work, one of his major novels called Devils, in which he looks at a village here. He looks at a village um, being transformed by these new enlightenment ideas coming from the West, Voltaire and all the others that are establishing themselves and um, saying that religion is superstition and, uh, and that men are showing how stupid they are by practicing religion to turn away. We watch all of these people in a village taken over by these ideas and what Dostoevsky makes clear is all these people have been overcome by demons. And he makes clear and the analogy here is um, the Bible. Remember when Christ goes to the demoniac and he casts the demons out and they go into the sea, they drown. And I'm underscoring that tonight because the argument that I've been making about um, Nefarious, which I think is a brilliant movie, is that in that movie, the demons are left, they're not defeated. That to me is a sign of a, of a theological artistic failure. And I say that with the highest kind of praise because I think whoever did that movie was brilliant. The argument, intellectually, argu the intellectual arguments are brilliant. Um, Dostoevsky would have never left it that way. The demons are defeated. In Brothers Karamazov, um, we're, have, we're in the last section we'll look at today, Ivan's going to encounter a demon. Okay? So I want you just to remember, Brothers published, I mean Dostoevsky published Brothers in 1878-80, it was, or 79, it was about a year and a half published in serial um, installments, just like Dickens. He's doing what Dickens did in England. And I, re I really believe Dickens was a model for a lot of what um, Dostoevsky did, except he went far beyond what Dickens did. He finished Brothers in 1880. Freud published Interpretation of Gene, 1905. Um, Introductory Lectures on Psychoanalysis, a major work and public lecture series, 1927, Future Illusion, 1930, Civilization is the Discontents. He came after Dostoevsky and he said of Dostoevsky's brothers, it was the most significant novel ever written. If you know anything about Freud, you know that his models were Oedipus Rex, a work of literature, and Dostoevsky. Now here's the irony. And I just want to underscore it without giving away a lot here because we've got a good bit of work ahead of us. From that chapter in which um, Smirjikov and Dostoevsky meets before he's going to go to that town, remember it's called, it's, it's, uh, it's always nice to talk to an intelligent man. Smirjikov and Ivan Hmm? What's Smirjikov and Ivan Right. Yeah. Sorry, did I cut? <laughs> oh, it's getting worse and worse. It is getting worse and worse. God, I, I feel bad for you guys. Um, Smirjikov keeps saying it's always nice to talk to an intelligent man because he's assuming Ivan knows what he's up to. And we don't learn until now in the chapters that we're going to look at that Ivan had no clue. And as he listens to Smirjikov unfold this, he begins to realize he's implicated in his father's death. 
But what he was implicitly doing, even, he, even if he, and he thinks of himself as an, intel, an educated, intelligent man. He's smart, he knows what's up. Smirjikov makes it clear, he's really stupid. He, he's more stupid because he thinks he knows when he doesn't. Um, so we've got Freud, so from that chapter, it's always nice to talk to an intelligent man, through the, the whole, so the, we talk about plot, the action of the story. From that moment until the chapter we're going to look at in a moment, we've, we've got this sense that there is an unconscious to a human being, what Jung would have called a shadow. That there's another part to us that doesn't show in the appearances we make to a public audience. We show how good we are to people. Underneath, there's something wrong with us. So Dostoevsky is the first one who, who made that spiritual underworld explicit. So it's only implicit in that chapter, you know, moving forward. It's always nice to talk to an intelligent guy. And we're going, what does he mean? And now we find out. I hope everybody sees that because remember, I've been talking about this novel as in some ways like a detective novel. We're reading to find out what happened. What's the significance of this? And we learn here in, in Ivan's visits with Smirchikov, he's actually the murderer. It's his philosophy that led to Smirchikov's killing him, his father. So we're suddenly seeing that he's implicated, there's a part of his character that he's not been willing to see. Jung and Freud both said, and Jung especially, if we don't learn to see that shadow part in us, we will never become who we're meant to be, because every, every one of us carries it. If we go through the world thinking we're all okay, we're back in what work? Scarlet letter. We've been there, right? It opens with all these women thinking they're good. They're not going to look at a dark side. The one that has to face herself is Hester and finally Dimsdale. So in the middle of the 19th century in this crisis in Christianity, we're finding that Christians are failing because they're really not dealing with this dark side, this shadow. Okay? Is everybody okay? So in the action of the plot, it's amazing because what um, Dostoevsky is doing is anticipating Freud. Now here's where I want to go with this. And I don't want to start any arguments tonight. If you could hold off of some of you. <laughs> um, Freud will take this and make it a science. And everywhere in Dostoevsky, there's almost nothing good said about sciences because Dostoevsky makes it clear from everybody. The sciences are getting it all wrong. They're trying to make something that's human, that can part, that's partly determined. Yeah? We've got these determines in it, determinants, and Freud would call it the Oedipal complex or the electrocompass or um, what's he call it, perversity, polymorphous perversity. He says those are things fixedness, they're determinisms. Is everybody clear? Because I, I, I just don't want to go on here. Science deals with determinisms, what can't be other than it is. That's why it's predictable. I'll say that again. Science deals with determinisms, materialist determinism. That's its nature. It can't deal with spiritual realities. It's dealing with determinism, what can't be other than it is. Otherwise, it couldn't be predictable, it couldn't be controlled. Freud wanted to take this and turn it into a science. 
And all the way through Dostoevsky, Dostoevsky is critical of the sciences because of the harm they're doing. So I just want everybody to keep that notion alive. It's one of the ironies of the book because both Melville and especially Dostoevsky are writing at a time when science is coming into conflict with Christianity. And both Melville and Dostoevsky are showing this is the crisis of our time. And it was true of Moby Dick, it's true of Brothers. That's at the heart of this work. So Dostoevsky's writing out of this, I don't know what to call it, a crucible. It's like a fire. That this radical change in the way that we look at our human nature is taking place and it's wrecking havoc everybody, everywhere. Okay? Um, so, when you stop and think about the place of Dostoevsky, you know that I've been claiming from the beginning that every one of the works that we've been reading has a prophetic aspect. I, I can only say that in spades with this. It's prophetic in the sense that he's standing on the verge of modernity when the whole way of looking at our human nature is radically up for grabs. It's being radically changed and it's creating this crisis of faith. That's what Brothers is about. So go back. We haven't read Jane Austen. Jane Austen, Dickens, Conrad, Henry James, go where you will. Has any author that you know of or that we've read ever dealt with explicitly, explicitly as a theme? Has any author we've ever read dealt with matters of church and state and the conflict between them? That's the fundamental issue in the beginning of Dostoevsky, right? In the meeting between the men. Church, what's the relation of church? He makes it explicit in an argument, in a debate between men. Has anybody dealt with church and state? Has anybody dealt with the immortality, of whether the soul is immortal or not? Has anybody dealt with the existence of God? Jane Austen, Dickens, Conrad, Trollope, George Eliot, George Eliot denied. Demons, go to Dickens. Jane Austen, she couldn't be farther away from it. Is everybody following? That's how radical this book is. That he's touching on something that's showing how deep the crisis is in Western civilization. That's why this book is so important. Is everybody okay? Um, at the core of it is Zasaban, who's the moral spiritual center of it, who says, um, it won't be until we're the worst of the worst that we can love everybody. We'll always make bad judgments. And I remember when we looked at that, I referred us back to Scarlet Letter because that's what the women were doing. They were judging Hester as if they were better. They didn't admit their own sins. Um, so at the center of this book is Zosima saying, it's only when we see ourselves as the worst of the worst, and it's only when we identify with the guilt of everybody that we can love as we should. Those are fundamental principles of Zosima. Yes? Okay, here's where it gets testy. Christ died for everybody, not just a few. He asked us to love the way he did. Do we love everybody even when they don't deserve it? How well do we do that? Um, Dimitri is being accused of a murder he didn't commit, right? 
And it's only, it's only when he goes to prison and he has to suffer the humiliation of being accused of something he did not do that he undergoes that conversion. And I made the suggestion last week, he's more like Christ in that moment because he's completely humbled. If everything's taken away from you, then how do you judge other people? In a, in a capitalistic society, the whole, the whole effort of capitalism, look how successful, look how good I am. I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. It's I, 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 I. I've accomplished this, I've got this much money. Zophism is saying it's only when we see ourselves as the worst and that we identify with the guilt of everybody that we can love. And I just want to refer us back to Christ because that's what he did. So where's Dostoevsky on that? We're watching Dimitri go to jail. We've seen people suffer. We, we're going to see Ivan taken to the brink of madness and Lisi as well. I mean, I want to look at those two characters tonight. Um, so one of the issues that we were faced with last week is how do we look at um, how self-righteous we can become when we're accused of doing something we didn't do. And I just, I mean, I can give myself as a prime example. Accuse me of something? I'm not even going to ask my wife to be honest about what she has to face then. Um, when we're accused of something we're not guilty of, what's our typical response? Usually it's not pleasant, I would think, but Dmitri's been accused of something he didn't do, and yet it leads to his conversion, and Grishenka's as well. She under she after the trial. I mean, after he's in, you know imprisoned and just before the trial, she's been sick for five weeks. What do we say about sickness? Very often, it's a manifestation of a spiritual trial. She's not the same person. She's sick. She's pale, but she's learned how to love. She's changing. She herself is going through a spiritual conversion. So up until this point we're watching this drama build up. The old, the old man is killed. This old way of life is being killed off. Everybody's undergoing this trial and it's in preparation for something new. And it's at that point that Dostoevsky will give us the chapter on the book on the kids. Why does he do that? In the midst of what I've been describing and now this ordeal, this spiritual ordeal that Lisi and Ivater go through. So those are just um, a couple of things. One reminder, you remember that we, I've mentioned this before, in Plato's Republic, which is the great pagan work on justice, Plato says that because he's trying to determine justice, because remember justice is the great virtue of the ancient world, not love, justice. That's the great virtue of the pagan world, is the great virtue of the Old Testament. Love becomes a virtue when Christ comes into the world. And bringing justice and love together is the great task of our lives. Plato said that an, until a man is crucified, until he's crucified and loses everything, we won't know if he's truly just. Because he may be doing things for the wrong reasons. And I hope everybody sees the sense of that. Because we'll always have reasons for getting angry when you know, something doesn't go our way. How well do we accept crucifixions? This is a pagan, Plato's saying. Until a man is crucified and he loses everything, we won't know if he's truly just. 
because he may be doing things for the... That's, that's partly an indictment of the Jewish tradition because remember the Jewish tradition was if you do all these things, these legalisms, you're the just man. Christ came to take that away. Or at least to transform it with love, not take it away. Because he himself came to fulfill the law. So, <coughs> Okay, I want to look at the book. Any questions or comments? We're going to go into depths right now, so you might want to get some wine. There are three bottles. Do you define the ease? Wait, so for you, Julius, if you haven't realized, this is really a closet. AA group. <laughs> we, we only come here to drink wine. The literature is an excuse. Good group. Good, good. I'm glad you said that. S sorry. Every book Lexi. We, every book we read, it's an excuse. It's good to see you again. It's good to see you again. Thanks. Call. I'm going to write a nasty letter to Heather. Will you tell her I've got a nasty letter coming for her and tell her to get back? But anyway, go ahead. Maybe I'll bring her back this month. Good. This is the class you should have come, but go ahead. What's your question? I was wondering what you said about the West versus the East, and the West is Logos, and the East not so much. And I'm wondering about how do you define the West and the East? If it came out of ancient Greece, are they not now part of the Eastern Orthodox tradition? So what is, where is the West and the East? Well... I mean, did Christianity change? You can turn around and go back out the door right now. <laughs> that is such a hairy question. Here, let me, let me, let me, I, I want to be careful because I want to get to this, but let me try to, if you, if you go, so, if you, if you look at the foundings of the West, yes. in the way that we've looked at them, you know that my claim is that the Iliad and the Odyssey are founding works. They belong with Genesis, except it's natural prophecy. It's, it's Homer saying, sing muse. He's appealing to a divine inspiration to tell that song. So there's already an awareness of a divine power that's necessary to tell a story about men because they're the gods are involved in it. So from the beginning in the pagan world, there's always an understanding that the divine is there, a sense of the locus. It's present from the beginning. It's there in Homer, it's there in Virgil. Virgil is following Dante, or I mean uh, Homer, carrying him on. Um, I'm going to short circuit this in a terrible way for you, but um, so that's West, and with and Plato. And I'm going to make the the philosopher is not going to agree with this. I mean, the philosopher and I are going to have awful arguments in this. The philosopher is going to say philosophy preceded literature, and I'm going to say that's absolutely not true. But it's the poets who have an intuitive grasp of something, and the po and the philosophers make it explicit. So Plato, I'm going to argue, Plato and Aristotle could have never done what they did. And I'm going to, so the pre-Socratics and then Plato and, and um, Aristotle pick it up. So you've got a philosophic tradition already beginning. But I'm going to say Homer's influence in that is not small. Plato, Plato knows that because he's setting Socrates up as a better example of a, of a virtuous man in place of 
Achilles and Odysseus. Socrates is much more philosophical. He's not given to his passions. Um, but the philosophic tradition begins there, and it's rooted in the logos. There's a logos. There's a reason in things of nature, and men have an affinity with it. They can make it clear. So the whole Socratic tradition, Aristotle, make explicit the truth of philosophy, that philosophy can grasp being, the truth of things. That's Western. That's in Italy, in the West. That shapes everything that begins. So for us, it went from there to Augustine, to Boethius, Dante, and in, in our, the work that we've done. In the East, it's not there. Even it's there, it's there thinly. I mean, there, the, so the place of Homer, um, Virgil, Plato, Aristotle, is, it, it doesn't have the place in the East, not anywhere close. Remember when we talked a couple of weeks ago, some time ago, I said that if you, this is too much to go into. So if you watch, historically, if you watch centers of power, you move from Rome to Constantinople, when Constantine moves it, and with the defeat of that, you go from Constantinople to Moscow, in, um, and then Peter the Great, who's taken by all these 18th, 19th century ideas, wants to transform Russia so it's only in the 18th, 19th century that Russia opens its arms, and I've made this point, but it does it overnight. What happens in Russia isn't the result of a tradition growing organically over time. That rational tradition or philosophy, what I'm calling the philosophical tradition, has no place. It suddenly comes in, but it's like an interruption, and it's in response to the abuses of reason by all these Enlightenment thinkers. So, in one sense, you look at Eastern Orthodoxy as sort of, so, Rome and Constantinople are Latin and Greek. Constantinople is Greek. It's the Greek language, it's Greek culture, Rome is Latin. There are political struggles. We didn't go into this, I touched on it, it probably wasn't going to mean what it could to us, but remember when we did Boethius. Boethius was caught up in the struggle between Roman culture and Greek culture and was accused of treacheries and was condemned to die because of these treacheries between the Greek culture and the Roman. He's executed. That's consolation of philosophy. That philosophic tradition is not established in the East under Eastern Orthodoxy. And in the 12th, 10, what is it, 1054, 11th century, um, um, Greece breaks off. It's schismatic because of the, it, they say it's issues over the uh, filioque. I think that's true, but I also think the, cult, the political differences were major in that shift. So the East has always been um, there sharing in, but it's never been steeped in that Western tradition. That's so they had Homer, who was had a sense of the logos, and that kind of went away. It's not a part of. It's not. It's. It was never a part of the Eastern culture the way it was in the West. Never. I the East was more mystical and. Yeah. So yeah. how did they not have that sacramental imagination? Oh, it seems I, like it would. It would be more prevalent there than. Maybe I don't understand really. Sorry. They are sacramental. No, but it's a good here because. Um, Right. So the, the Byzantine Church is firmly part of Western civilization. 
it's not Eastern in the sense of Oriental. Right, know. right. I'm talking about the Orthodox Church, Greek and, and Russian. Greek I am too, Russian. yeah. Yeah, let me stop. I've got to, I've got to call. But okay. here, just, um, and I'm trying to come up with an answer to the question because it's a good one. Here, all I can say is, um, if you look at Eastern mythologies, religions, there is always something mystical, otherworldly. Always has been. And it's not like it's not lacking in the West, in Homer or Virgil. But if you look at Homer and Virgil, you look at their heroes, Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas, they are far more earthly grounded. Their goals are earthly. The, the issue for Achilles is honor. And it's, oh, remember in the ninth book when he says, such honor is a thing I need not. And he stays out of the war. And then when Patroclus dies, he comes back. All of that's worldly. Because, I mean, one of the amazing things about the East is it's far more incarnational, the West, than the East. So honor is something, even though it's got a transcendent source, as Achilles discovers, it's embodied in what he does in the world. He goes to war. Um, Aeneas does with marriages. I mean, we see a different marriage. So there's a, there's a I don't know to call it, a tendency to give a greater importance to the human tradition, the humanist tradition in the West than in the East in the Orthodox Church, either Greek or Turkish or doesn't matter. That the, that Orthodox tradition tends to be more worldly. If you can, I mean, otherworldly. If you can leave it, I want to come back to it because I want to make a point to that effect. But that's that's the easy, I mean, the simple answer that I can give you to a. But just in terms of generalization, I think that's a fairly accurate description of differences between the two cultures. Um, let's go on. You can't ask a question for the next half hour. Okay. <laughs> that could be a whole class. <laughs> oh, yeah, several. I mean, it, there's... Excellent. Yeah. In book, part four, book ten, The Boys, so we have just been taken up in Dimitri's interrogation, and he's claiming an innocence, and at this point we have every reason for believing he's guilty. Because the last time we saw Dimitri, he was looking at his father's window with every intent to kill him. And Dostoevsky leaves us there. He's a master. He knows what he's doing. He's left us there. So we have every reason to believe this guy's guilty. He's interrogated. All the evidence is against him. All of it. He has every motive for killing his father. Economic, personal. And then Dostoevsky shifts. Dimitri's imprisoned. He's awaiting trial, and just if he shifts the perspective to the boys, and we get this. Um, Kolya, who is this bright, precocious young kid, takes his friend Smurov with this dog to go visit Elusha. Um, Remember, Elusha's that boy who bit Alyosha's finger. Remember, he didn't know what, why that kid was so angry at him. And he discovers that, his, um, that this boy was humiliated by what Dmitri did with his father. That because of this quarrel involving Fyodor, the father, Fyodor Kirmazov, um, Dmitri pulls the, the captain out by his beard and humiliates him. And his son is humiliated. All the boys tease him. There's a violence between the boys. Um, um, Kolya finds himself sticking up for Ilusha because he's so brave. And um, 
Elusha comes down with consumption, he's been sick. Kolya has known about it for some time and he's not gone. It'll be the one rebuke, serious rebuke that um, Alyosha makes of the boy because in everything else he does he's kind and considerate. Um, they go to um, Elusha's home and it's there that um, Kolya meets Alyosha. He's been looking forward to this meeting because he's heard so much about him. In fact, he's very self-conscious because you know in, from the way that Dostoevsky presents him that he thinks of himself as being precocious and smarter and better than everybody else and he wants to show off. And he's a little bit intimidated by the thought that Alyosha might not think well of him. He's very self-conscious. There's an insecurity that he has that he even admits. He comes and they meet and um, um, he learned, Kolya learns then that Elusha's um, probably going to die. Um, and Kolya tells Alyosha the story of what happened with Elusha that um, Smerdyakov had taught Elusha this trick of putting pins in a piece of meat and feeding it to the dogs. And he did it, and this dog runs off, yelping in, obviously, in pain. He's got needles in his stomach. And Kolya is so upset when he hears that about Elusha that he says he's going to break from him. That he, it's his way of punishing him. He says, you can't do that. Elusha is so upset that they squabble, and he pulls out a knife and stabs Kolya. And um, what happens then is actually the beginning of a good friendship um, because they begin to bond together. But this is the first time Kolya has seen Elusha for a long time. Okay, I just want to read a couple of lines because I want to try to keep us in the book as much as I can tonight. Um, on my page 553, this is chapter 6 in um, in book 10. It's called Precocity. This is Alyosha engaging um, Kolya and Kolya says to this person he's meeting for the first time, I've long learned to respect the rare person in you. I've heard you are a mystic and we're in the monastery. I knew you were a mystic but that didn't stop me. The touch of reality will cure you. He's talking to an older boy and he's presumptuous enough to say, I've got all the answers to the thing. You'll get over this stuff. You're just young. Um, you're a mystic. What do you mean by mystic? Cure me of what? Alyosha was a little surprised. Well, God and all that. What don't you believe in God? The one, I mean, everybody will notice this, but let me point it out. It, <coughs> one of the things that distinguishes Alyosha is he never gets defensive. Never. He's never concerned to defend himself. His issue is not, this he got from Sasam. His issue is never to defend himself. His issue is always the good of another person. And it means whatever he says carries a good for that person. So instead of judging and condemning, because you know all the way through these chapters, Kolya's pressing buttons everywhere. He's always critical, he's above people. Alyosha never, except for the one reproach, I think, when he talks about the dog, he, he always is square to him. He's truthful, never in an accusatory way. It's a remarkable young man. 
Um, what do you mean by a mystic? Well, God and all that. What? You don't believe in God? On the contrary, I have nothing against God. Of course God is only a hypothesis, but I admit he is, a necess he is necessary for the sake of order, for the order of the world and so on. If there were no God, we should have to, he should have to be within. He'll go on like that for a minute. Um, I want to read one more passage in a moment, but who does that remind you of? Voltaire said it. Voltaire, who else in the book? Hmm? Yvonne. Yvonne. I mean, I'm, and everybody needs to see it. This is a young Yvonne. It's absolutely crucial to see this. These are the same lines that Yvonne gave us in the beginning of the story. And he's repeated. So here's the, I, I don't want an answer. I'm going to come back to it in a minute. What's Dostoevsky doing? Here's a young Yvonne who's showing all these Western influences, just as they were in Yvonne, except it's in a young kid. So this whole section on the kids is the future of Russia. This is the future of this people. And right now it's centered on this young kid and he sounds a lot like Ivan. So hold on to that, okay? What are we going to do with that? Um, Kolya is very self-conscious. Um, he says at the bottom of 556, a few pages in, don't tell me you're just rubbing it in. It serves me right. That was Van, he says, because Alyosha is saying, you should have come to visit Elusha before this. It's a real reproach. He, um, he said, you should have visited before them. Though it was my vanity that kept me from coming, egotistic vanity and, those, and base despotism, which I have, been, haven't been able to get rid of all my life. Though all my life I've been trying to break myself. I'm a scoundrel in many ways, Karamazov, I see it now. This is the first time he's been openly humble and honest about himself in the presence of anybody. That's how much trust he has in Alyosha, okay? Now go down below, he's admitting how ridiculous it is. So he's being genuinely humble and truthful about himself. And he's saying, I'm ridiculous and um, everybody's laughing at me sometimes I imagine. And I torment people around me, especially my mother. Tell me, Karamazov, am I very ridiculous now? This is crucial. But don't think about it. This is Alyosha. Don't think about it at all, Alyosha exclaimed. What does it mean? Ridiculous? What does it matter? How many times a man is or seems to be ridiculous besides nowadays almost all capable people are terribly afraid of being ridiculous? Remember Fyodor Karamazov? The whole beginning was his being a buffoon and not caring whether people thought about it or not. He just accepted that he was. It's almost a madness. The devil has incarnated himself in this vanity and crept into a whole generation. Precisely the devil, Alyosha added, not smiling at all as Kolya, what was looking at him, who was looking at him intently, though for a moment. You are like everyone else, Alyosha concluded. That is, like a great many others, only you ought not to be like everyone else. That's what. Um, so he's saying, don't be worried what other people think. But I just wanted to read that passage because Alyosha is saying it's demons who are inhabiting kids who are becoming so self-conscious about who they are that they don't become who they are. They're trying to be something they're not. But it's, it's the effect that he gives the demonic here that I just want to touch on. Just keep that in mind here, okay? They will go inside, and you, you remember Koya were bringing the dog that, that Elusha thought he had killed. And 
Kolya will show these tricks that he's trained the dog to perform and Ilusha is elated. He's just thrilled. Um, he's happy. He's genuinely happy. Um, Kolya brings out a, a toy cannon with powder to give to the boy and the mother immediately wants it. She says, I want it for myself. I mean, it seems very selfish. She wants it for herself and Ilusha gives it up. So Kolya's being selfless. He's finally showed up. He's bringing the dog back as a gift to undo the wrong so that Elusha's um, conscience can be cleared. I think there's an illusion earlier from Alyosha that um, Elusha's sickness was actually not a curse but a punishment from God. It was like a guilty conscience. Elusha's happy. He gives the toy to his mother. She's happy. We see Elusha becoming selfless. He gives the gift up, even though it was a toy for him because his mother wanted it so much. And then there's that long um, scene at the end where the doctor goes in, the boys go out for a moment, and the doctor comes out and says he's going to die. And it, um, it's a, ton a tender s a scene. Kolya won't show his emotions. He's afraid to show his emotions. And this is on page 561. It's the last two pages of that chapter before um, the section on um, Ivan. Um, the boy knows he's going to die, the father knows he's going to die, and the boy says, Papa, Papa, I'm so sorry for you, Elusha moaned bitterly. Um, and um, Kolya says, shut up old man, you get well. He, and he gets angry. He has no other way of showing emotions. He just, you, you know that he's always got to be in control of his emotions. He gets angry, tells him to shut up, he doesn't want to hear it. And don't ever forget me, Papa, Elusha went on, visit my grave. And he reminds him to visit that stone. That stone will be the marker that ends this book. It's where all the boys will meet. Um, so the boy is saying, don't forget me, go to that stone. And the father goes out and he starts weeping profusely. And he says in the very last page, I don't want a nice boy. I don't want another boy. If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my tongue cleave. Kolya doesn't know what the reference is, but you know that's from one of the songs that you don't want to ever forget the most important thing. If you do, if you do, you lose your tongue. So the father is distraught. What we've got here at the end, at this point, as the boys, we, we know he's going to die, is a reversal of what we've got in the Karamazov family. In the Karamazov family, nobody cares whether the father's dying. No, none of the sons. We, we, know, we don't hear, which to me is partly a critique of them. Particularly if you take Zosimov seriously, because Zosimov love everybody. Um, we don't get that. Here we've got the reverse, a son grieving for his father, and a father grieving because he's going to lose his son. So it, it just intensifies the sort of contrast that's taking place. The other thing to hold on to, with the death of Elusha, the question I think Dostoevsky is putting to us is, is that honor code that the boy grew up under, with his father, because his father's an honorable man, that's why the boy was so humiliated. Um, when the boy dies, is that the dying out of that honor code? That his father's the last vestige of that honor code, that, that Russia is changing under these new times. Look, about, look at America. The honor code in the South used to dominate the South. That strong sense of honor that men would go, men would, what do you have it when they had, uh, they took pistols at each other and, Duel, yeah. Over a sense of honor. Imagine that today. It's not going to happen. 
So we're watching an honor code die out. A boy in whom that honor would have been carried forward is dying, and the father is grieving. Um, he's watching his son die. Here's my question before we go to Ivana, and I want to focus on Ivan. What is Dostoevsky doing with this whole, whole book on the boys? And let me try to underscore this. We just left Dmitri, who's being accused of humiliated. Remember, he's forced to undress and he has to look at his ugly toe and the humiliation of being naked and accused of murder, and he's not a murderer. Um, and we shift to this whole, whole book on the boys, showing the relationship between Kolya and Alyosha and Elusha. Elusha's dying. Um, Kolya's learning something from Alyosha. Why this whole chapter right now, just before the trial and the climax of the work? Why does well, Dostoevsky take us here to these, this chapter on the kids? Yep, yep, yep. And wait, just think about the the difference there. Um, that he's reconciling two boys, or helping helping to deepen because the boys have been reconciling, but not quite yet. Um, he's helping to reconcile these two boys, um, and one of them was taught by Smirjakov. Kolya was tried taught to do this cruel thing by Smirjakov. Ivan is Smirjakov's teacher. Everything that Ivan does is through his teacher. He makes that clear. Ivan has been his leader. You've got a, two boys now who've been at odds struggling, trying to reconcile, and, um, and Alyosha comes into the picture and helps in some sense. Um, but it involves a kid who was taught by Smirjikov, and Kolya says of Alyosha, um, you and I will be fast friends forever. He, he looks to him as a teacher, that he's got something to learn from him, that he's not learned from all these other Western influences. So um, he's reconciling the two boys in a spirit of love. He's teaching them something as a teacher um, I mean, you can ask, what, what's, where's Cole you're going to go after this? He's a young kid. We won't see him again, except briefly at the end. Yeah. We're, what will he grow up to do? You know, sorry, sorry Chuck, go. No, I so said, yeah, just agree with this. Yeah. I mean, he's setting the stage here for the finale, which is really good. Yeah. Anybody else on this chapter? Mary, go. But I saw what would happen with adults was beginning with these children. They were fighting, hating each other, uh, you know, having ideas about, well, he did this and he did that. A lot of it's not true. It's blown out of proportion. Right. And a voice is putting a stop to it so that it doesn't mature. Well, in the same line of... Yeah, in the same direction, yeah. It, it also, it, to me, it's, it's a pinpoint, but it's a very dark pinpoint. 
Say it again, Chuck. Say it. Slow down. Right. There's no mitigating that. That's pure evil and affects the boys. Well, creates dissension devices. Yeah. 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 It's really remarkable to watch Alyosha work. He's not defensive. He's not pushy. He's just holding the ground. Holding the ground. <laughs> um holding his own, but in a spirit. So he's not backing off of things. He's not pushing. He just speaks the truth. So there's nothing defensive to get in the way to, you know, to provoke somebody. He's just speaking the truth. He's a remarkable young kid in what he's doing. And the, the, what makes it even more powerful is Koi is such a precocious kid. He's so talented. He's so gifted. He's ready to take on everybody. He goes through the marketplace putting everybody down to show how bright he is. He uses people, the peasants, to show how smart he is. He's got quick answers for everything. But Ayliosha quiets on that. He, Kolya feels that he's in the presence of something different. Um, and it helps him. So, I mean, we don't know what the future will be. In one sense, I'm saying this really, it's a young Ivan. He has, he has the same beliefs that Ivan has. He starts out with the same. There's no, he says Christ is a wonderful figure, but he doesn't believe in the divinity of Christ. He's very much like Ivan. So I think we're meant to see, this is Ivan as a young boy. What's going to happen? And here at the beginning, we're seeing how important Alyosha's influence is on him. And it's not small. Koya admires him. I think he actually loves him. It's beginning to love him. Anybody else? I thought that uh, the adults in that room, the mother and the father, yeah. especially the mother, were very silly. <laughs> yeah. Father, yeah. She, very immature. Yeah. Kids were the mature ones. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you feel it even more because Koi is so sophisticated. He, 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 he makes us so aware that he belongs to a different generation. Remember, this is an uneducated generation for the most part. The, the mother and father belong to that generation that's dying out. This, the young generation is coming in with new ideas and different ways of thinking. And um, I've got another question. Um, and I'm, I'm going to ask you not to answer the first one. I'm just going to leave it as a question. And this is going to seem dark. Is Kolya enough? If this is the promise of the future, because you, you know that Zosima sent Alyosha into the world. And this is really interesting. He sent him out in the world, away from his family. Dimitri's on trial. Alyosha is not visiting his brother right now. He's visiting... Um, Elusha. His brother's on trial. He's not with his family. And repeatedly, you know, Zosim had said, leave the monastery, leave your family, go out into the world. Oops, sorry. <coughs> Will call you be enough? And I want, I'm, this is going to be a provocative question, but I'm going to ask you to hold off on it. We're in an orthodox culture, not a Catholic culture. There's nothing unifying there's nothing unifying a religious sentiment. There's no pope saying abortion's bad, homosexuality's bad. 
You've got these autonomous centers that are not unified. So we've talked about this before. There's no unity. The elder tradition is dying out. That's so clear. The tradition of the elders is dying. Zosima belongs to a fading generation. The priests don't like it. The priests do not like him because he undermines the sacraments. Confession, Eucharist is not a part of it. They go to Zosima for confession. So there's no center authority unifying a religious sentiment in Russia. This is going to be going to my conclusion next week. So how do we look at this hope for the future with Kolya? I just, I don't want an answer. If you could just hold on to that. I want you to think about this. It goes to... So could you repeat the question about Kolya? If this is the hope of the future, what does that hope look like? I'm described, so he's not religious, he doesn't believe in God. Um, he says, I don't believe in God, he doesn't believe in Christ as a, with his divinity. He's a bright young kid. All the, all the kids admire him. They look up to him. Alyosha comes into this picture and suddenly things begin to change a little bit. But I'm saying, if this is the future, how do we look at it? If this is the hope, how do we look at that hope? I don't want to go into this, please. It, to me, it's just a huge, huge question. But because I think the whole function of this kid's chapter is, this is the future. And Alyosha's had a big role in helping Kolya to something. I just want to put the question out. Here's the other question that I have. Um, the trial's about to go on. Why does Doskesi shift our focus for a moment to these kids and what seems to be a very hopeful moment? The boy's dying, Elisha's dying, but um, and Kolya's angry. He leaves in anger. He doesn't want to talk about it. But we know he's angry because he loves the boy as much as he does. You know, he's the kind of kid he'd want to do something about it. Um, so I'd just like to offer another thought. It seems to me one of the functions of this boy's chapter is this. We're in the midst of a trial. Dimitri's being accused of something he's not guilty of. He's innocent. He's undergoing a Christ-like trial. Um, I think Dostoevsky's reminding us how easy it is to let our emotions get caught up in a moment and forget that something good somewhere else is going on. And I just want to underscore that because in that sense we're back with Boethius in Chaucer. Remember in Chaucer, we talked about this when Chaucer was doing the Knights, you could go any, take the Knights Tale when, uh, what's the, who's dying? God, blow my mind. Palamon and, starts with an A. Remember when they were in a joust together? And, God, Palamon and, not Eris, but he died. And Chaucer's describing, the, the narrative of the night is describing that death and the funeral arrangements, and everybody's mourning. The women are crying. And Chaucer's describing everything in rhyme royal. A, A, B, B, C, C, D, D, remember? And I asked, why is he doing that? Because lots of modern teachers can say, it's an artificial rhyme. A, A, B, B, C, D, you know, every couplet rhymes. Through this whole section having to do with death and mourning, when everybody's mourning. I suggested everybody, that is not technical, that's Boethius, Chaucer. That's Chaucer living Boethius, because Boethius said, there's never, 
bad fortune. God is always at work. He never abandons us. We're always reminded there. Remember, I gave you the examples. We're, we should be reminded. Harmony is never not there, no matter how bad the circumstances are around us. The flowers are outside. The bees will be doing what they do. The sun will be shining. There is a beauty and harmony everywhere in nature. Are we seeing it? Is it a part of our life? Or are we letting our emotions in that moment concerning something dark overwhelm us? Here in the middle of this awful trial, and, it's, and, and by the way, this, it's just begun to get dark because in the Yvonne section, it's going to get even darker. Dostoevsky throws in this chapter, this book on the kids. It's innocent, it's light. It's a reminder that no matter how dark things are in front of us, there's something else going on somewhere where God's at work. How often do we hold on to that when things go bad for us? This is Boethius from the West. <laughs> Let me stop. I want to go to Yvonne. Any comments or questions on the kids section? It's a brilliant section. I mean, what he's doing. Just stop and think about it. Right now, in this place, in this time, things couldn't be darker. And he's going to the kids. Sorry. Sorry? Say, say again. Ilyusha, you know, he's dying. It's not all sweetness and light over mm -hmm. there. I mean, but it's, right. but it's beautiful. Like, it is tender. The father and the son and everything. They're making that death beautiful. Yes. And tender. Yes. Yeah, it's very tender. There's a death, but it's not, it's not heavy. We don't feel anything sinister. There's nothing dark, it's foreboding. It's bringing forgiveness and mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. The beginning of the book, you know, Zosima's brother died yeah. and went through long suffering, and it just said kind of same thing. It was consumption, where his brother changed for the better and changed everybody around him. Right. That's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. Yeah. Something good will come. It depends how we approach death. Well, I hope we're learning something from the books to bring to however we approach death. Here, let me, I want to go to what's dark here, okay? Okay, here's where it gets dark. In book 11, um, which focuses on um, Lisi and Ali Osha, um, um, it opens with our learning that Grushenka's been ill for weeks and Alicia has been visiting her. She's pale, but um, she has a radiant kind of beauty that she's never had before. And interestingly, even though she and Dimitri made up and declared their love for each other, and it was absolute, you know that. She said, I will be your slave forever. She is furious with him. They can't get together without arguing. He's jealous of her because he thinks she still loves Dimitri. Um, she's jealous of him because she thinks he loves Katrina and something secretive is going on and trying to, you know, I mean, even though they both declared this love, they still carry these deep passions. And so whenever they get together, they still fight. When he leaves Dimitri's, he goes to Lisa because she summoned him. And he learns that, um, I want to ask a question, and I hope if anybody's read my notes, if you could just be still for a minute, because I want to put this to the class, because to me it's amazing. When he goes there, he talks to her mother, 
who is always rambling forever. She, I mean, she's everywhere. And she describes finally her daughter's hysteria and says, go talk to her. Um, Lisi called Alyosha because she wants to give him a note to Yvonne and apparently it's a, it's a declaration for him. What happens in the scene between Lisi and Alyosha is she says she wants to break off the engagement and um, it's, a, it's a touching, touching scene. Hold on for a minute. Let me, I want to see if I can get to a couple of passages here. Um, sorry. Um, somebody can help me here. Hold on. Where she... The mother describes her hysteria and then um, um, Lisi um, tells De, um, Alyosha that she wants to break off the engagement. This is about, this is in chapter 3 of The Little Demon, I think, 583 in my book, somewhere in there. She says that she wants to marry somebody um, who will torment her and whom she can use. And she doesn't want to do, I want, this is really interesting. She, she doesn't want to use him. So she says she's breaking off. She wants to marry somebody who will torment her because she believes she deserves punishment. Her whole view of the world has darkened and she says, and she's been reading all of these books. I have a book here, I read it about some trial somewhere and a Jew first cut off all the fingers of a four-year-old boy and then crucified him, on, nailed him on, she goes on, and the Jew watches the boy die while he's moaning and takes pleasure at the moaning. And he says, good. And Alice says, good? Lisi, good. Sometimes I imagine that it was I who crucified him. He hangs there moaning and I sit down facing him eating pineapple compote. So she's taking her pleasure while this kid that she sees herself crucifying is suffering. Um, she tells him to go and before he leaves she says, you know Alyosha, you know I'd like to, Alyosha, save me. This is the very end, the last page. Suddenly jumped up from the couch, rushed to him, held him tightly in her arms, save me, she almost ground. Would I tell you, anyone in the world, what I told you? But I told you the truth, the truth, the truth. I'll kill myself because everything is so loathsome to me. Go down, everything's so loathsome. Alicia, why, why don't you love me at all? She finished in a frenzy. No, I do love you, Alyosha answered ardently. And will you weep for me, will you? I will, not because I did want to be your wife, but just weep for me, just so I will, it goes on. She sends him in a way and she says, go, um, give this note to him. And then when he leaves, it ends with this description. Ten, ten seconds later, having reached, released her hand, she went quietly and slowly to her chair, sat straight up in it, began looking intently at her blackened finger. She puts her finger in the door, remember, and slams the door on her finger. And it, it balloons in swelling. Mean, 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 mean. Those are her last words. Um, um, 
what's going on with Lisi and why what has led her down this she's walking now you remember she was crippled before what's led to this change in her that's so spiritually psychologically different any thoughts on that Tour engaged. This is Alyosha, and he says he loves her, and I believe him. Um, how are we? To, what's happening with Lisi? What is it? What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, that, that she wants this. She wants struggle. She wants strength. She doesn't want happiness. God. God. It's very relevant to us, I think, if that's not clear in a minute. What causes this? Her mother's not much of a help, sadly. I mean she's she's not a small influence, but Let me let me put this because I I, I want to be you know we're asked to be careful in the judgments we make. There's an inversion of the crucifixion going on with Lisi. She has this dream of a Jew who crucified a boy. She sees herself as doing that. She's tormented. She thinks of herself as being evil. That's the way she sees her now. So in one sense, I'm going to claim. You argue with me if you want. It seems to me that what she's doing is self-sacrificing. She's giving up Alyosha because she loves him. She wants to marry somebody because she believes she should be punished, tormented, because her view of the world has darkened. So hold on for a second. I'm trying to give her everything I can here. She loves him and does not want to marry him, not because she doesn't love him, because she does. She even says, save me. She doesn't want, she wants somebody to marry who will torment her because she believes she deserves it. Where did this come from? Hold on, you guys, because we've been talking about reading forever. Here's a passage, two pages in from the end. Yes, yes, you... Yeah, two pa three pages in from the end. Yes, so this is chapter, a little demon, chapter three. Yes, yes, you've spoken my own thoughts. They love it. They all love it. She says, generally, there are people who love crime all over this country. What's everybody focused on in the nation right now? The Karamaz of crime because this man has killed his father. The whole nation is involved in this, God, what today we would call fake news. I want to come to this in a minute. Because the question here is the, the influence, the negative influence that reading can have on people. The whole nation is reading about this and they're getting the wrong idea of it. A whole nation. And is anybody turning away from it? They're all eating it up. Look at our own culture today and, and the way it feeds on media today she says 
There are moments when people love crime, Aliosa said pensively. Yes, yes, you've spoken my own thought. That's her thought. They love it. They all love it and love it always, not just at moments. You know, it's as if some point they all agreed to lie about it and have been lying about it ever since. They all say that they hate what's bad, but they secretly all love it. They are reading about bad things. And are you still reading bad books? Yes, Mama reads them and hides them under her pillow, and I steal them. Aren't you ashamed to be ruining yourself? I want to ruin myself. And there's a boy here, and he laid down under the rails. goes on it. I love it that he killed his father. They love it. They all love it. Everybody says it's terrible, but secretly, they all love it terribly. I'm the first to love it. She's being honest. What caused this decline in her? In the next part, she talks about the devils coming into her room. I mean, that's like, that's serious. What's the cause of it? Demon. Reading. Bad reading. She opened the door. Reading. Wait, hold on just for a second. I've, you can argue. I would say 90% of the stuff coming out of Hollywood today is horror movies. Maybe I'm, maybe 80. Same guy. The other, the other, the other 90% of you coming out of Hollywood is movies about people pulling off heists, robbing banks, getting away from it, stealing. I mean, all these heroic things where you're taking money because, because anybody who has money today has, has not earned it legally. So you've got all, the, I mean, I, I, did, I should write a list, but I'm assuming everybody would know. There are all these movies about criminals carrying off these extraordinary, and ending up with all this money at the end because the American dream is all this money. And if you can't get it legally, because most of the people who get it legally are somehow using the justice system, you steal it. The greater part of literature in our age is romantic sentimentality, horror, or movies celebrating robbers, thieves. That's our culture. And if you grow up, in, or, or pornography is the other major part of it, if you grow up in that, and that's the major stuff that forms our minds, until you reach a point where it's all acceptable, then what you're going to do is lie about it. That's the way it is. And they learn to talk about it as if it's the truth. How is what she's describing any different from what's going on in our world? What took Lisi down her, and her mother's hiding this stuff under her pillow, and she's stealing it from it? It couldn't be more explicit. Alyosha, Alyosha, and are you still reading bad books? Aren't you ashamed to be ruining yourself? What's brought her down there? That's what she reads. Sorry if I get passionate about this. <laughs> you know my concern. Like St. Paul warned, he said there are, not everything has to be discussed amongst you. He said there are things that you do not need to speak about. <laughs> there are things you do not need to read and know about. Just pull up the, the, the feed on Fox News or watch the local news. Crimes against children, crimes all over. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't watch it anymore because yeah, it's just, it, it disturbs your sleep. And these are things that you, <laughs> St. Paul said, you do not need to know like an irritation of sin. They're not going to edify you or help you in your spirituality. Because it's true crime. I shouldn't be doing this, but... True crime. True crime. True crime. All the people love it. I just want to remind you what Chesterton said because it's my own guide. All the grandmothers in Victorian England wanted to get rid of all the 
um, Grimm's fairy tales because they're so violent. So get rid of violent. Chesterton's answer, which seemed to me the only insane one, is you don't want to get rid of crime. You you have to read it because otherwise you don't know yourself and what you're dealing. How do you deal with the world when you're in the dark about it all? What you don't want to do is is um, get rid of all the crime, you want to make sure there's a St. George answering it. Yes. And you've heard me say, I mean, it's one of the reasons that I've got this thing about nefarious. If you're dealing with good and evil and that evil is not answered, you don't want to leave people that way because it encourages people to get cynical, despair, skeptical. You want to see good stuff. We're dealing with it. We, we haven't dealt with a work this dark. We're going to get to an evil in a minute. But it's answered. Dostoevsky's answering it. Here, quick. That clock is a little bit fast, but I want to do this as quickly as I can. You know that right now, Ivan um, goes to visit Smirjakov three times, and he has three visits with the demons. And you know that there are three temptations. So he, he goes to um, Smirjakov. And after one of the visits, he goes to Catherine, Katerina, because um, he's convinced by her that Dmitri killed um, his father because she has that letter. And that convinces him even more, and he goes back to Smirjikov another time, one of, the, one of the times. And then he realized that Katerina herself had gone to Smirjikov. And he says to himself, why would she have done this unless she herself doubts? So he goes back. In each of the three visits, he learns more and more about himself. That, his, that Smirjikov first says, the reason you went to this town is um, implicitly to um, support Dmitri killing your father. Because if you were worried about it, you wouldn't have gone. That's the, I mean, that's the core of the argument. And that by going to that closer town, he would be discouraging Dmitri because he was closer. But everything he did, as a matter of fact, gave, implied his consent. That's, um, that's Smirjikov's argument. And in the third visit, Smirjikov finally makes clear that he killed him. Smirjikov killed him and accuses um, Ivan because he says, you're the one who did it. I was just following, I was your lackey. I was doing everything you wanted to do. So if I can just cut this short, so in three visits, we have a drama of, thanks, we have a drama of increasing self-knowledge. The Dmitri, Ivan is learning to see something about himself. And I want to underscore this, because Freud comes later. Freud wants to turn it into a science, which means this is true of everybody. I don't think Dostoevsky would have said, although Dostoevsky would have acknowledged there are universal truths. But fixed determinisms, that's another thing. But in that, in that sequence, we're watching a man come to learn about the dark sides of himself. It's something a, I would think a Catholic would be more, less nervous about because we have confession, so we're encouraged to learn to know ourselves, to learn to see and not be ashamed, no matter how bad they are, to go to confession because we believe no matter how bad they are, Christ will confess if we go to him. So there's an encouragement in confession to admit our sins and struggle with them. That's not there in the book. That's a back comment. But, but Ivan is learning to see himself. And in the final, um, in the final meeting, 
um, he learned he, um, Smirgis says you knew about the murder you told me to kill him sir and knowing everything you felt therefore I want to prove it to your face tonight in this the chief murder is you alone and I'm just I'm not the real chief one though I did kill him it's you who are the most lawful because he's the one whose principles opened it because remember Yvonne's principle is everything's permissible if there's no God then you can do anything you want now the result of this is this Zosimov said um, we're all guilty with each other but he said that as a way of encouraging us to love Smirjikov is saying following Ivan um, everything's permissible so we can do whatever we want that's an opening to violence and Smirjikov commits it he kills the father and implicates so in one sense it's interesting because what happens is what Smirjikov does, does is implicating Ivan making it clear that we're all implicated in each other's sins and that goes to my opening comment Christ died for all of us can we bring that kind of love to each other particularly where it gets ugly and I'm assuming everybody knows how gruesome that can be here's my question and I think I'm going to have to carry this over. That clock's too fast, but I'm, we're at the end. I want to go over some of that section. You know that in the very last section, after the third meeting, um, and it's interesting in that third meeting, the last thing that Smirjikov says to Ivan is farewell, as if it's final. He doesn't say anything. He tells Ivan, you won't go to court tomorrow to testify, because Ivan says, I'm going to go testify. I'm going to blow the lid. I'm going to tell you killed him and I was implicated. So Yvonne is going to perform a virtuous act. It's going to require that he shame himself, confess himself. Um, Smirjikov says, no you're not. And then when Yvonne leaves, he says, farewell. Now hold on to that. You know that when he gets home, he sits down and he suddenly becomes aware of this gentleman in this seedy coat looking like a, the, the ideal of mediocrity. It's not the devil in fire and, you know, it's, it's this mediocre kind of looking character who begins to address him as a devil. And Ivan says, you are me, I'm you, you're not somebody else. He keeps denying that he's a devil and every time he does, the devil has an answer for him. But the interesting thing is every one of his answers, except one that I remember, every one of his answers is something Ivan knows. Now hold on to me for just a second. Modern psychologists along a Freudian line, who are all materialists, would say all of these things are projections of Ivan's unconscious. There's no devil, because they don't believe in devils, they're materialists. Follow me for a second, okay? Modern, so this is not Freud, this is Dostoevsky, 50 years before Freud makes the unconscious popular. We've got this figure answering Ivan point by point and arguing and making clear that he is real and Ivan keeps saying no you're not you're stupid and all of these are projections except once when the devil's describing himself as, as possibly getting a pneumonia or a, it wasn't pneumonia but 
but he describes himself as getting sick and going to a doctor and specialist and getting medications and stuff like this. And at one point he has the quote and says something like, um, I'm, after all, I'm a man and nothing's alien to a man. So he could have all these symptoms that are common to human beings. And all the while, Ivan is denying that he's um, a, a devil, that he's really a projection of his human consciousness. So he's de denying everything spiritually evil about him. Except for that one thing, when, and Ivan says about that one thing, you didn't get that from me. So occasionally, something happens to make us wonder. Now here's where I want to go. At the very end of that scene, the devil talks about um, the Grand Inquisitor. And for the first time, Ivan gets really touchy. And remember, in the Grand Inquisitor, he brings Christ into the drama who appears and the Grand Inquisitor ends by kissing him. It's a touching, it, it's one of the most powerful scenes in all of literature. Everybody recognizes it for its power. And it's Ivan laying his soul bare because he's raising the question, why, does, why do innocent people suffer? These kids, why are they suffering? And this, this, Grand this Catholic Church kills all these people and the Catholic Church is taking Christ away, it's serving the, the devil, this is um, Ivan's argument, because it's taking on authority, miracles, and mystery. Those are the three things Christ left us with. He said the Catholic Church has assumed all of those so people don't have to deal with them. So they turn to the Catholic Church. Remember I suggested when we met, that's as close to an argument as, for socialism as I've ever seen. You turn all this power over to another body, mystery, miracles, authority, so that you're relieved of those burdens. That's socialism. Except Ivan's argument is that's the Catholic Church. I think it's a Eastern prejudice, but, but the devil mentioned it, and it's the first time that Ivan gets so angry. A moment before he, put, he stood up, put a towel, wet towel, put it around him, and started pacing the room. Got a wet towel on him. At that moment when the devil mentions that, he picks up a glass and throws it at him glass of water. And right at that moment Alyosha knocks and he comes in. When we get the description of the scene, the towel's not anywhere around. It's folded where it was. The glass is on the table. So we're wondering if that doesn't invalidate the dream so that we come out of it saying that this is an illusion. It's a projection. It's a hallucination. It's a the modern scientist. It's a projection of something in Yvonne's psyche, okay? Now, hold on. Remember, Freud, most modern psychiatrists, psychologists are materialists. They don't believe in God. So, Freud's understanding of the unconscious is somatic. It's bodily. Freud had no sense of a spiritual unconscious in which God or illumination, divine illumination, or the demonic could do its work. He would explain that away according to psychological theory. Is everybody clear? It's crucial to get this. Modern materialists don't acknowledge God. Freud denies free will, didn't believe in God. He denies free will. He openly says there's no free will. So he would explain things away by determinisms in the somatic unconscious, the dark unconscious. Bring all that stuff up and people get free of their repressions. He has no knowledge of the spiritual unconscious, which means good and evil. To find that, 
<laughs> we have to go, sorry, we have to go to the poets. Now my question is, Alyosha comes in, the glass is on the table, the towel is where it was, it's not wet, and when Alyosha comes in, he says, I've got to tell you something, Smirjikov just killed himself. Ivan says, I know it, he told me. And then he starts naming the things, he says, he told me that I, um, that I wouldn't go, if I did go, I'd be doing it for my own vanity. And those are things that we didn't learn in the description of the dream. So we're getting stuff outside the dream, a couple of things. And I don't want to talk about it now because it's too late, but I want to begin next week. Does that one comment where he says, you didn't get that from me, and all that transpires with Alyosha when Alyosha comes in, does that invalidate the dream? Was it all unreal and merely a projection of Ivan's unconscious, or is the demonic at work? Leave it there. That's where I want to pick up next week. Read, if you haven't read that, it's one chapter with a demon. Read that one chapter for sure. Don't read my notes, read that chapter. Yes, sir. <laughs> Can you say that again, please? That came from Mary. Can I hear that again? I want to hear that again from Mary. I want that, I want that down recorded. She is sassy. <laughs>